Hosea chapter 8. Let's turn there, please. Hosea chapter 8. Beginning a new chapter. I'd like to say we can get through the whole thing, but we're not. We're going to take our time. We'll finish it probably next week or next time. Hosea chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 is our text for tonight. God has been indicting Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. He calls them Ephraim or Ephraim in this particular uh, prophecy. And he has indicted them for their rebellion against him, for their worship of idols, for their adulteries, both spiritual and physical adultery, and has given them opportunity to repent. And even with the things that the Lord is saying to them in this particular chapter, as close as, as the time is coming for them to be judged for their sins, if they were to repent on the very moment that they would hear these particular indictments, God would rescue them. Because that's the faithfulness of God. That's the commitment God has to his people. And not only Israel, but all of his people who have come to him by faith. But we find once again this reference to the sound of a trumpet. He's already said that they have cried out, not with their heart. They've returned, but not to him. They realize that they're going to have to deal with the, the Assyrian Empire. But they're not crying out to God. So, he, so the Lord, through the prophet, says, set the trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. Israel shall cry unto me, my God, we know thee. Israel has cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. Now I have a question. How good is anyone in the sight of God? How good is anyone in the sight of God? Now most people over the centuries, as well as today, would admit they're not perfect. But there are very few who actually think that they are so flawed that the Lord would reject them. Very few who think that way. Very few who think that they're flawed enough for the Lord to reject them. That's because most people believe that they're good enough to be acceptable to God. The reason is that people start thinking, you know, well, I go to church. You know, I pray sometimes. Yeah, I know. Some people pray three times a day. Breakfast, lunch, and supper. That's not enough, is it? Scriptures tell us to pray without ceasing. That's the attitude of the heart of the believer in Jesus Christ. We're to pray without ceasing. We have no moment that we're not connected to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. No moment that we're not connected to the God who created us and made us in his image. So there are those who think that, you know, my good is going to outweigh my bad. That's the whole point here. The, the, the good is going to outweigh the bad. And so the majority of people usually reject any teaching or preaching that, con that condemns sin and warns of the Lord's coming judgment. They don't want to hear it. And the sad thing is, as I mentioned just a little while ago, that kind of teaching is in the church today. And sadly, it's rampant. 
Pastors don't teach about sin in some cases because they, they, want, they want numbers. They're all about nickels and noses. But we need to be about the truth. It doesn't make us better than anybody else because one thing we realize is that we're sinners. We make mistakes, don't we? There's times when we don't think about the Lord, you know, we, there's times when we are faithless about certain things. And what does the scripture say? You know, if, 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 if it comes down to it, if we are without faith, then we're in sin. So that's where we stand today. But this rejection of any teaching of condemning sin or warning of God's coming judgment, it's based on ignorance, it's based on spiritual blindness, it's based, it's based on misleading arguments, and or it, it could be based also on self-deception. Whatever the reason may be, by simply rejecting this truth, <clears throat> these people are dooming themselves to everlasting punishment and eternal separation from God. And this is the plain teaching of the Word of God. We all know it, Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned, Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short and come short of the glory of God. But besides the scriptures, uh, besides the scriptures clearly state that the only way that we could ever become acceptable to God is by trusting that the death of his son, our Lord, Je our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, has paid the penalty for our sins and provided forgiveness for us. I mean, this is basic salvation 101. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And notice verse 5 having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, take even more note of verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Folks, there's nothing in us of what we've done that can bring us to acceptance in the beloved except that we have believed in the work of Christ on our behalf. Verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Notice, we don't have redemption through our, our works. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, according to the riches of his unmerited favor, the, the favor that none of us deserve. And so without this forgiveness, we are not acceptable to God, and he will judge us for our sins. That's the bottom line. And here in chapter 8 of Hosea's prophecy, the Lord speaks through the prophet a powerful message about the judgment that was coming upon the people of the northern kingdom of Israel as a result of their sins. But it is a message that every generation must heed and pay close attention to. It should not be a message disregarded by anyone. especially those who may profess a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. I've oftentimes spoken a lot about the difference between profession and confession. We are to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that he's risen from the dead. But there are many who profess primarily with their mouth but not with their heart. There are some distinctions. We could take more time than we need to on that, but we've done it before. It shouldn't be a message that we disregard. The message begins with short, rapid, broken sentences full of quickness and expressing sudden danger. Verse 1, for example, set the trumpet to thy mouth, 
Literally in the Hebrew, it says, the trumpet to thy mouth. The word set is not in the Hebrew. The trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord. In the Hebrew, it says, an eagle against the house of the Lord. So listen, the trumpet to thy mouth, an eagle against the house of the Lord. Because they have transgressed my covenant. They've trespassed my law. Now, this is not the first trumpet commanded by the Lord to be sounded here in the book of Hosea. Back in Hosea chapter 5, verse 8, it tells us, Blow ye the cornet. The cornet, by the way, is the shofar, the ram's horn. Blow ye the shofar in Gibeah, and the trumpet, the hatzotzera, that's the silver trumpet that is uh, spoken of in, in the scriptures in Ramah, cry aloud at Bethaven, the house of, of wickedness, after thee, O Benjamin. So blow the shofar, blow the hatzotzera. Don't just blow one trumpet, blow every trumpet you got. Why? Well, the shofar, the ram's horn, and the hatzotzera, the trumpets made of silver, and I, I know that I did this, so this is kind of review, but they were blown to announce special occasions, generally speaking, but they were also blown to sound alarms. That's what's happening here. They're blowing the shofar and the hatzotzera to to sound an alarm and to gather the people uh, in preparation for a coming war. Lord, the Lord has made it clear that their enemy, the Assyrians, are going to come and attack them. And it can be stated outright that the call of this trumpet in chapter 8 was one of alarm because that enemy was coming and the Lord was giving opportunity to repent. That's another reason for the blowing of the, the, the shofar and the hatzotzera. They blow and say, listen, here's the alarm. You need to get right with, with, with me now. How many times does the Lord have to warn us of our condition? Warn us of our sin. Warn us of our heart attitude. How many times does the Lord have to do that? There comes a time, as we've seen in Scripture many times for the children of Israel, that they've been warned and warned and warned upon warning, and they did not heed it, and God would put them into captivity. God would chastise them for not trusting in Him, for breaking the covenant with God. We'll see some of that tonight. The eagle that was coming, the eagle that is mentioned there in verse 1, he shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord. And by the way, the house of the Lord is, is not like the temple because the northern kingdom didn't really have a temple, did they? They had forsaken the temple of Jerusalem, gone north to do what? To set up two places of worship for idols. Well, that's great. So the house of the Lord is not talking about a place of worship. It's talking about the land and the nation of Israel. And the eagle was coming swiftly against the land and the nation of Israel. And that eagle would have to be Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, who at that time exhibited the rapidity or the materialism, the greed and the strength of that regal bird that we call an eagle. That eagle was swift. It was a scavenger. What it saw, it wanted. And that's all it wanted. And it was greedy enough to fight off anybody else to get what they wanted. And it was a strong, strong scavenger. But God had prophesied to Israel early on when, the second, when, when the, the, the second reading or the second giving of the law, which is Deuteronomy, was given. There was blessings that were pronounced. There were also curses pronounced. And in the midst of all of that, this is what is said. In Deuteronomy 28, turn to uh, verse 47. 
Deuteronomy 28. If I mumble and stumble, that's because I bit my tongue, and so I kind of feel really weird right now. <laughs> Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 through 51. Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things, therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he hath destroyed thee. Now, how many of you think that's a pretty strong warning? I think that's a pretty strong warning. I mean, it's a heavy duty warning. It goes on. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth. Now, that could possibly represent Assyria. I would say that it does. But it also could represent Babylon, which it would when it comes to the southern kingdom of Israel and uh, the southern kingdom of Judah and their disobedience later on, they would have to deal with the swiftness of, of Babylon coming and taking them into captivity. But it also could refer to Rome and the Roman Empire much later because all three used an eagle as one of their symbols. Interesting. A nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand. A nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor shall show favor to the young. And he shall eat the fruit of thy cattle and the fruit of thy land until thou be destroyed, which also shall not leave thee either corn or grain, wine or oil, or the increase of thy kine, cattle, or flocks of thy sheep until he hath destroyed thee. So that was prophesied years and years before this, uh, the, this northern kingdom of Israel was at that point of, of being judged for their disobedience to God, for their rebelliousness toward God, I mean, for their arrogance to embrace other gods and to embrace the, the attitudes of the other nations and their gods, as well as the practices, the sexual practices of, of, of their uh, uh, types of worship. And so the Lord, through Hosea, gives us five reasons for his judgment of Israel. Now we're only going to cover three tonight because we're going to cover the first three verses. But the first reason for his judgment of Israel was that the people had broken their covenant with God and rebelled against his law. It says there in verse 1, because they have transgressed my covenant, notice, and trespassed against my law. So that's God speaking directly to this northern kingdom of Israel. They, they had made a covenant promise that they would follow the Lord and keep his commandments. They, I speak of, generally speaking, of all the nation of Israel, when you put the two nations together, the northern and southern kingdoms. They had made a covenant promise that they would follow the Lord and keep his commandments. Now, some of the kings of, of the southern kingdom did that, and the people followed them and you know, stayed fairly close to the Lord. There would, uh, there would be other kings that would rise up that were not good kings, they were evil kings. They would lead the people down that path. Now, the people are just moving with their kings, which is not a good thing always because they should have been moving there with their one king who was the only king who was God Almighty himself. But in return, because they had made this promise, if they had followed him, if they had obeyed him and done so by faith and with love, the Lord had promised to help and bless them if they had obeyed. But down through the centuries, when you think about it, you look very carefully now at all the scriptures, 
Down through the centuries, the people had broken the covenant. They had refused to keep their promise to obey and to follow the Lord. And of course, they went even further. And they opposed and they rebelled against God's holy commandments. They opposed them and rebelled against them. Outright rebellion. Outright opposition. Outright disobedience. I want you to consider, if you will, the children of Israel after they had been delivered from their bondage in Egypt. This was hundreds of years before. Just consider that in the third month, while in the wilderness of Sinai, Moses received this message from the Lord for the people. Listen carefully, Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verses 3 through 8. Now, some of you may accuse me of going down a rabbit hole. It's a little rabbit hole. It's going to turn into a big rabbit hole. <laughs> so, no, but it's all part of what we're, what we're looking at because there is precedent here for what's happening with the people from beginning to end when they don't trust in their God that has created them and gave them everything that he promised them if they would only believe and if they would only obey. And Moses, verse, this is verse 3, Exodus 19, verse 3. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Yaakov, Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings. Isn't it interesting that God came and carried them on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself? Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, take note of those phrases. If you'll obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now let me just kind of interject something very quickly, kind of just like, what, did, what would it have required? Faith, trust, trust in the God who has led you out of captivity and is taking you to his promised land because he loves you. And he didn't love you because you were a great number or stronger than all these other nations, because you weren't. They weren't. He chose them because he loved them. Hey, God can do that. But these are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. He tells Moses, verse 7, And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord had commanded him. In other words, he said it directly to these people, face to face. And all the people answered together and listened to what they said. Everything that God had told Moses to tell them, he tells them, and this is their response. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Did they do it? And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. Lord, the people said, all that you've spoken, they will do. Now here's a question I need to ask before we go on. Were they serious or was God serious? Were they serious or was God serious? I want you to consider also when the commandments were spoken by God to the people of Sinai, their reaction and God's response. Because this is very important as well. Look at Exodus 20 now, verses 18 through 23. And all the people saw. This is, now this is God getting ready to speak the words. Well, actually, he's already spoken the words of the Ten Commandments. He had written them with his finger on the tablets, but now he speaks them to his people, and it says, and all the people saw the thunderings, and the lightnings, 
the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. He's saying to them, hey, listen, this is, all, this is what I'm telling you to do. And you just said to Moses just a little earlier, all the things that I tell you, you'll do. But now they've removed themselves afar off. They stand afar off from the mountain. They ran away, in other words, from the mountain. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Now I'll tell you in a moment what the response should have been. Verse 20, And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, fear not. There's a certain way to fear God, in other words, and there's a way not to, and you shouldn't fear it that way. So don't fear, for God is come to prove you. He's come to test you, and that his fear may be before your faces that you sin not. That's a different kind of fear. Don't fear this one way, fearing him in terror and in, in, in anguish and all, because it's revealing where your heart's at before a holy God. But fear him this other way, that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. That fear is the fear of reverence, of awe, and respect unto God. And the people stood afar off. They, they, they haven't come back yet. And Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. Moses went back to where God was. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Notice what he says. Verse 23. You shall not make with me gods of silver. Neither shall you make unto you gods of gold. Not only is he saying that. Think about this for a moment. Not only is he saying that to those people, it's like he's opened their hearts and knows already what he does, that that's what they're going to do. But it also reveals the hearts of all the people that come after them, who now, hundreds and hundreds of years later, are worshiping gods of gold and silver in defiance against the law of God. My question to you is, was this a fear of death or the fear of the Lord? They were worried about dying, but why? Lest we die. Don't let God speak to us, lest we die. Go all the way to chapter 31 now of Exodus. In verse 18. It's the last verse of chapter 31 going into chapter 32, which is what we're going to do. Verse 18 says, And he gave unto Moses... When he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. And when the people saw, verse 1, and when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron, the brother of Moses, the spokesman, if you will, for Moses, and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. We don't know what's become of Moses. Now, I know that most of you, if not all of you, have seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Y'all remember that? 
There's kind of this, this scene, you know, where this is happening, and, and Aaron just kind of looks, you know, confounded. He looks like he's really struggling in his heart about whether he's going to do this or not, but he seems to be forced into the, into the actions of, of making this uh, uh, golden calf for the people, right? That's not what the text is telling us. They come and say to him, make us gods. And Aaron said unto them, right away, break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron, and he received them at their hand. Notice and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. That's a very insightful phrase. They rose up to play. I'll tell you right now, God's not playing. God doesn't play those kind of games. Let me ask you this question. How, how many people fear death because they haven't experienced life the way that they want? I've talked to people like that. Oh, I don't, I don't want to die. I haven't done everything I want to do in this life. Your life is not in your hands. It's in God's. Or your life isn't in God's hands. It's in yours. Which, which way is better? We've all, we all probably have something, at least one thing, that we'd like to do before we go home to be with the Lord or before the rapture of the church or whatever it is. But, but we, we know that, you know, if, if, the, if the Lord were to come right now and we don't get to do that, eh, no big deal, right? Right? I mean, it's no big deal. There's some people that have a big deal about things. And they make out their bucket lists. And they put a whole bunch of stuff. And they want to fulfill all those things before death comes. Our focus isn't to be on death. Our focus is to be on life. And that's what he wanted his people to understand. You know, people fear death because they haven't experienced life the way they want or because the lusts of their flesh haven't, haven't been fulfilled quite the way they'd like it to be. I want to ask you a question. Do you remember the lie? Do you remember the lie of the serpent in the garden? Y'all have to remember that. I've mentioned it all the time. That's where all the problems started. Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. Now, we're not going to read the whole passage, but right here in verses 4 and 5, listen to what it said. The serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. Now, the statement's already been said. Did God really say that? Hath God said? Did God really say those things? Well, you know, he said if we eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know, or even touch it, which is not what God said, but we'll die. He says you shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day that you eat thereof that then your eyes will be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now that sounds pretty good, except for one thing. In the state that they were going to fall in because of, after eating the, the fruit, they would not know how to handle good and evil. They would need to handle it according to the way God would want them to know it. But the enemy was tempting them into this delusion. He used doubt, as God said. He used denial, you shall not surely die. And then he gave them delusion, you shall be as gods. Delusion. But they can handle good and evil. 
The whole idea about this knowing good and evil, it, from God's perspective, is that we know what is good and that's what we do. We know what is evil and that's what we don't do. That's the proper understanding of knowing good and evil. But that comes from understanding and knowing God who created us and knows us better than we know ourselves. What man wants to do is know good and evil as if to say, I know good things and I know evil things and it's all good. God can, a God can handle it. If, if, if I'm going to be as a God, then I can handle these things. That's what's so dangerous today about certain uh, uh, theologies where people say, listen, you can be as God. The extreme, of course, is Mormonism where they tell you that you're all going to be gods. You're going to have your own planets and planetary systems and whatnot. It's just a lie. But please understand that the Word of Faith uh, uh, movement, the uh, uh, prosperity movement, does the same thing. Now they not only exploit it, but they got people thinking, see, they've fallen into the delusion. Let me, then let, let me define delusion for you. A delusion is, and I quote, a mistaken belief that is held with strong conviction even in the presence of superior evidence to the contrary. Well, the evidence to the contrary that none of us are gods is that we all will die. Real gods don't die. That's why there's only one God and he doesn't die. He's life and he will always have life and be life and give life. And these people that say, you're, you're gods, you're gods, you're gods. They're going to believe that delusion. Unfortunately, <laughs> that particular thought puts you in a mental ward somewhere. When you consider the coming of Antichrist, as we're looking at things happening prophetically now, when you consider the coming of Antichrist, the idea of delusion is even more clearly defined if you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. <coughs> That's where Paul says, and then shall that wicked be revealed, speaking of the Antichrist or the beast, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. That very same beast who believes that he's a god. And he even goes into the temple uh, saying that he's God. But notice he's going to be consumed with the spirit of God's mouth and Christ's mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, who by the way as Lucifer said, I'm going to be as, as God. Isaiah chapter 14. And even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness, notice the word deceive in there, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth. That isn't that it, the love of the truth wasn't given to them. They didn't receive it because they didn't want it. Are, are you getting the understanding here? That's where a lot of people are in this world today because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. You ever talk to somebody about the Lord and, and you tell them about being saved and they say, I don't need to be saved. Saved from what? And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion. And they start believing what cannot be supported by evidence, that they should believe a lie. And literally, it is the lie, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What is missing today, as in the days of Moses, was the true reverential fear of the Lord. The true reverential fear of the Lord. And yet it wasn't something that the Lord overlooked. It wasn't something that he forgot to mention to his people. No, go back again to Deuteronomy. This time go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter six. And there in verses one through five, it says, now these are the commandments, the statutes 
and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you. Don't forget, this is before he talks to them about their coming judgment that's going to come as swift as an eagle. He said again, now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that you might do them in the land whither you go to possess it. That thou, and here's the reason, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God. The word is yare, yare in the Hebrew, yare. Fear the Lord thy God in reverence. Fear the Lord in respect. Fear the Lord in awe. He is God and you are not. To keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou, and thy son, and thy son's sons, all the days of thy life. As it goes on and on and on to the very time that we're dealing with in Hosea. And that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee. God wants the best for his people, doesn't he? Doesn't God want the best? That it may be well with thee, and that, that, he, that you may, ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers have promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. And here, O Israel... Uh, this is the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echod. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thine heart, with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. That is reverential fear. When you love with the kind of love that God gives us for one another and for God, it is a love that humbles us that puts us below others. And we love up because you can never love down. Only God can because he's perfect and because he's love. And Christ is love incarnate that he came down and put on himself flesh that he might die on our behalf and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God? How many times before we get back over to chapter 28 when we were where we were before, that all this is before. He says, now, Israel, what does the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in his way, all his ways, and to love him and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep thy commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. It's for your good. The benefits of fearing the Lord in this manner are great and they're wondrous. Think about it. I'm going to give you a big, quick list here. Psalm 25, verse 14. Be ready. Psalm 25, 14 says, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. I want to know his covenant. I want to know. It's, it might be a secret to others. It's not a secret to us who love him and to those who serve him and to those who humble themselves to him and to those who are fearing him in the right way. Psalm 33, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. We all want to be the, the beneficiaries of his mercy. Mercy in, in the Hebrew is, 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 is connected to the understanding of what his love is. His loving kindnesses speak of his mercy. Psalm 34, verse 7. The angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him and delivereth them. I'm not going to go into this whole thing about angels being all over the place, but you know what? Angels are all over the place especially around God's people. Now we're not, you know, we're going to draw, you know, oh, I saw this, and no, 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 no. Just, just realize, you don't need to see them. They're there, because God said they would be. And they that fear the Lord will have the angels there to deliver them. 
Psalm 110, I'm sorry, 111, verse 10. Psalm 111, that's what my tongue's not working. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. Proverbs 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now, folks, there, shouldn't, there should be no question that because of the Lord in our lives, we know good and evil, not because we're God's, but because he's God, and he's made it clear through his word. He hates evil. Guess what we're to do with evil? we got to hate it too. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. God hates it. We should hate it too. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. The knowledge of the holy, that, that which is set apart for God and by God, is understanding. I need that understanding. You need that understanding. We need that understanding. All oh, God's children need that understanding. You understand? Okay. Good. Proverbs 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongeth days. Now, that's not according to our measure of time. That's according to God's measure of time. Please understand that. Because there are some people that went home to be with the Lord a long, long time ago. They'd be, you know dying at a, a particular age, but they were serving the Lord. God, they're home, with, they're home with the Lord. We miss them. But we know that they're safe if they were believers. The fear of the Lord prolongeth days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. The second reason for God's judgment of Israel is Found in verse 2, the people had made a false profession. They made a false profession. Look at verse 2. Israel shall cry unto me, My God, we know thee. You know me? Do you really know me? You see, the people pretended to believe in the Lord and his word, but their profession was just hypocritical lip service. Their hearts were set up on, on pursuing the lusts, pleasures, and possessions of this world. That was seen in what they were worshiping, where they were worshiping, who they were worshiping, right? In their hour of need, they, they plead their knowledge of God as the people of his covenant. Oh God, we know thee. But they said, my God. Now they're taking possession of God. My God, we know thee. And yet their acts do not acknowledge him at all. Remember what Jesus said. I know that I quoted this not too long ago. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them. Now see, the Lord professes because this is talking about him saying directly to them. I never knew you. Depart from me, you, ye that work iniquity. Paul to Titus in Titus chapter 1 verse 16 says this, speaking of those same kinds of people who, who talk a good talk but don't walk the walk. He says they profess that they know God, but in works, they deny him. The very things that they do that are worldly, that in many cases could be considered as evil or wicked, how they speak to someone, how they condemn, you know, it's not for us to do the condemning. God will do that. It's his business. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So in works they deny him being abominable 
Now that's a pretty strong word. That's not the, he's not going from the littlest to the biggest. He started with the biggest thing. It's abominable and disobedient. And unto every good work, reprobate. Worthless in a spiritual sense. Isaiah 29, verse 13, going all the way back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 29, 13 says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. That's what's happening today in the church. The precepts of men are taking precedent over the, the word of God, over the truth of God's word. People don't want to hear about hell, so they'll follow people like Rob Bell, who writes a book and says, you know, uh, I don't think there really is a hell. Because that would, you know, that would impugn the, 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 the person of God. No, then you don't know God. That our God is holy. That our God is righteous. Then that our God is just. And that he's true. So you don't know God if you don't understand the fact that he's also the God of love and mercy. People just want to see him as a God of love and mercy and grace. But just read Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah has the vision of, of the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of, of the Lord's uh, robe and majesty filled the temple. And he heard the angels sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the character that they saw in God. He's holy. Above all, he's holy. The third reason for God's judgment of Israel is found in verse 3. The people have rejected what was good. It says Israel has, has cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. When you consider what is good, that is truly seeking and believing in the Lord. And understand, he wants us to seek him. If you will seek me, you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. I believe as believers in Jesus Christ today, we're to seek him every day. Why? Because we every day wrestle with the flesh and we wrestle with principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this age spiritual wickednesses in high places. We wrestle every day. And many times we wrestle with ourselves. Paul talks about it as being the spirit against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. We war each and every day. We need to seek the Lord and believe in the Lord, trust in the Lord, depend upon the Lord because he's the only living and true God. And doing deeds of righteousness in the spirit of justice, mercy, and humility is what he requires of us. Think about Hosea 5, verse 15, just a few pages back. I will go and return to my place, God said, till they acknowledge their offense. I'm done with them. I'm going away. I'm going to you know, be away from them. I'm going to withdraw myself. This is how they fall into captivity in, uh, with Assyria and Babylon later in the southern kingdom because he withdraws himself. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face, notice. In their affliction, they will seek me early. You know why? Because affliction is not easy. Affliction is hard. Affliction is, is, is painful. And the affliction of the world through the devil and his minions and his hordes is beyond painful. In Habakkuk 2 verse 4 it says, Behold, his, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by his faith. The one who is righteous will live by his faith 
and trust in God. Getting to that which is good, what about Micah chapter 6, verse 8? We should all know this. It's a great song. I, think, I hope we can sing it again one of these days. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. I have yet to see a word of faith pastor walk humbly before his God. Why? Because they think they're their, their own gods. They've already confessed that. We're little gods, they say. Well, if you're a little god, you're going to die like men. That's what the scripture says. What a deception. We are to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God. Amos 5, verses 14 and 15 says, Seek good. Seek good. Everything that the children of Israel in the northern kingdom were doing, everything that they were doing was bad. Everything that they were doing was evil. Everything that they did. I mean, we've gone down the list. They stole from each other. They killed each other. They robbed. They pillaged each other. Sounds like Chicago. Isn't that sad, what's happening in Chicago today? And who's doing anything about it? See good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as you have spoken. Hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. Years ago as children, you know, we were taught what was good and what was bad. We were to do what was good. We were to get away from what was bad. But those things, that, that kind of ethic is not taught in schools today. Because nobody wants to define what is good because we say, well, it's relative now. See, that's the problem. We've made everything relative. There are no absolutes. Therefore, what? The, angel, the, the devil has, has, has won that particular culture war in education. And unless our children in our homes here in the church are brought up in the word of God, they're not gonna know that difference. Hate the evil, love the good, and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. That's interesting because who's the son of Joseph? Ephraim. How good is anyone in the sight of God? The question I asked at the beginning of the study, how good is anyone? If you're familiar with Isaiah 64, verse 6, you know that it says, but we are all, notice, not just some, but all, as an unclean thing. The first, I, the first thought that would come to mind if we were an unclean thing is leprous. But notice the next phrase, and all our righteousnesses. Notice they're not just one righteousness, it's all our, unri or all our righteousnesses. The righteousnesses that we attach to ourselves as if we're good, as if we've done it to ourselves or for ourselves. No, our own righteousness, our self-righteousness are as filthy rags. Those are menstrual cloths. If you read the law, you realize that menstrual cloths were unclean. And it says, we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Our sin has taken us away. God is serious about our sin. Israel was playing with God. God said, I'm not playing. I love you too much to play with you. There's a difference between playing like that and, and understanding the joy of the Lord because the joy of the Lord is to be our strength. And we can rejoice and we can understand true happiness in the Lord with one another as believers in Jesus Christ. And we can have joy amongst ourselves because we love the Lord and we share the love of Christ. And he's taught us to humble ourselves so that we don't look down at anyone, but we look up at people, serve them to love them. 
It just comes down to the fact that Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Now that's pretty serious, isn't it? <clears throat> it doesn't make it light. It makes us heavy. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why we need to know Jesus. And we need to know the power of the cross, the power of the shed blood of Jesus, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, that we may know Christ and know him crucified, buried, but on the third day, risen and alive now. Amen?